Hi friends, join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. All right. Welcome, guys, to our third annual live spoiler recap. Whether you are joining us here in the studio, feels so official to say studio, but you know, mm-hmm. not really. If you're joining us here for our recording live, or whether you are listening, you know, a couple weeks, whatever later, welcome. This is hands down always our listeners' favorite episode because you guys get to participate with us and talk with us as we discuss the season and the episode. Um, and I know we're doing things a little bit different this year by not having live call-ins, but we still want to hear from you guys just the same. And I think it's going to be really fun. And we have the really, really meaty, restless episode to talk about. And there's some really interesting things that it foreshadows for the characters in the future seasons. Um, so I I have a couple of interesting questions that I would personally like to know your thoughts on. So it's going to be really good. And just a reminder that um, we are doing spoiler episodes again. So it's a lot like what we're going to be talking about here today. So if that is your jam and you feel like you learned something, consider buying us a coffee and getting to hear our spoilery thoughts on each episode. And if you don't want to be a subscriber but you want to show some love, feel free to make a one-time donation. But regardless, huge shout out to those of you guys that support us, whether it's buying us a coffee or just sharing our posts or commenting or listening or whatever. Thank you guys so much. We appreciate it. So, all right, let's talk Buffy. Okay, starting off, just kind of like a little bit of an icebreaker. And you guys in you guys in the audience, audience participation. Um, let us know your guys' thoughts too. Like, I'll be asking Tabby and Leah these questions um, since they're here, obviously. But feel free to jump in, and we'll have either Leah or Tabby go ahead and read out your guys' comments and questions, and we'll get them on the live recording. So. Okay, we all know that season four is a mixed bag as opposed to previous seasons. That's no secret. So in ranking the seasons, this is just what I see generally across the board. Many people either have season seven or season four as their least favorite with a few people sometimes doing like season one. But those two, season seven, season four, are typically in the bottom tier. I'm curious, Tabby and Leah, do you guys think that season four or season seven is worse and why? It's <laughs> like, oh man, I'm not awake yet. I know, for real. I, I didn't. Oh, dang, you like beer bad. I, okay, here's the thing. I don't hate beer bad because it's very campy. It's very kooky. Um, but I don't love it. Um, but I'm trying to think. I would say I enjoy season seven more because I, Unlike a lot of people, I like ending of shows. I like, especially when they're good endings. Um, There are parts of season seven that I think really flopped. Um, But it's really nice seeing everyone. Is this spoiler? Yeah, this is a spoiler for us. I'm going to double check. Um, (laughs) It's really nice seeing Faith in season seven, seeing like Angel and like Spike, Anya, like you see everyone pretty much that's that's been of significant besides like Cordelia, you see everyone in the show that has been of significance 
comeback. And um, to me, I love that. Um, I hate certain episodes in season seven. I think they're so unbelievably uncharacteristic and just so bad. But if I had to choose to, to sit down through season seven and season four, I'd pick season seven. Probably every time. I just think Interesting. I just think season four it's like it doesn't build to anything. What's the point of mm. watching it? Whereas season seven, I, there's bad parts, but I at least know the ending is good. I at least know it's getting somewhere. And there are some there are some episodes in season seven that are so good. Um, and there are some in season four as well. I just think. I don't know. I think personally I would pick season seven. I don't know if I would say it's better. I think it's I would just, just more say, enjoyable for you to watch. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. Fine. I think it's yeah. just, it's more enjoyable for me. I, that is very surprising. I actually have a very different um, opinion. I, uh, so I, four and seven are my least favorite um, seasons for sure. I don't know which one is my least favorite to be honest because I feel like they're pretty comparable and it's like ups and downs um and they both have some amazing really standalone episodes like season seven is by no means bad um I this is gonna sound really weird I would probably choose to watch season four for the vibes like I the, the, I don't know if this is gonna make any sense but like there's something in the air about the last season of any show that makes me like I, I don't know what it is it's sad. yeah I just it, yeah. I feel like like yeah. when I watch the last season of any show I don't care if it's like even like the 10th season of Friends it's still like happy and just like episodic and I'm just like and I'm sitting here being like they know it's the last season I know it's the last season everyone knows it's the last go are they really Rachel anymore are they really Monica are they just playing this caricature of their character like mm. um I feel like the the actors put a little bit more passion not necessarily Buffy I'm not saying that but I'm saying like in my brain I'm thinking that I'm like are they just kind of going through the scripts at this point because they're burnt out Whereas mm -hmm. when I watch the beginning parts of shows, like I'm like, okay, so they're trying to figure out their character. They're like trying to understand their psyche. Like they're they're really trying to go hard with the chemistry with their with their uh um significant other on the show because they want people or at least the the directors, writers, whatever, really want people to like be tuned in. Um, it feels a little bit more nostalgic in the beginning couple seasons. So I feel like season four to me, I'd probably watch more. Um also because Buffy feels a little bit more like happy Buffy. Season 7 Buffy <laughs> is still going through it. Season 7 Buffy isn't happy to you? She's just burnt out. She's a burnt out yeah. girly in season 7. Yeah. And she's still Buffy. Like she has some great moments here and there. But like when I watch it, I'm just like this girly needs a break. She needs a hug. Like I just <laughs> and, – yeah. And some of the conflicts like Leah said just kind of really like make me sad in season 7. And that's not to say that like – Helpless is one of my favorite episodes. I think it's so good. Um, actually, the first seven episodes of season seven is so fire. And then it loses me for like the half of the show or half of the season. Um, and I <laughs> I hate watching finales of shows. I'm like really saying the opposite of what Leah just said. Yeah, you are the opposite I, of Leah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, 
usually and I are, are pretty on the same page with our opinions on stuff. But like I just it's like I kind of like what I said earlier. Like it's like in my head, I'm like, oh, my gosh, like they're just saying a script and like they're sad it's over. But are they like burnt out? Like, I don't know. Something's in the air. Even if it's a really great finale, the finale Buffy's phenomenal, but it's also stressful and it's also sad. And I I will probably when I'm rewatching shows because I binge watch and rewatch the same shows all the time because that's my comfort. I will almost always skip the last episode because I just can't do it. Weird. Yeah. I can't do it. Unless it's like a huge closing of like this these two characters finally getting back together and it's like this happy moment, which most season finales are like that, to be honest. They have this huge break with the main couple and they haven't come back together. Um, I will usually watch it for that. But if it's just like a, everyone's in the exact same spot as they were at the beginning of the season, I'm not going to watch the last episode. I will say there's two shows – that I will never watch the ending to, and that is Merlin. I hate. Oh, the I don't ending. watch the last season. <laughs> I can't do the it. The last season's great. The last episode no. sucks. It's awful. Uh, I've watched it once, and I'll never watch it again. Yeah. And the other one is um, How I Met Your Mother. I knew it was gonna be that one. Yeah. yeah. I watched the alternative yeah. ending. Or I don't watch any, and I just make up in my mind what should have happened. Yeah, you stop <laughs> like three episodes beforehand. And then you're like, well, hey, happy vibes. They just they they rewrite the whole story. It's just they're not good endings. But if it's a good ending, then I'll watch till the end. I didn't realize how like how different the answers would be because like in the comments, it's like every other one. One person will say they prefer mm-hmm. season four, and one person will mm-hmm. say they prefer season five. Season seven, yeah, so, yeah. It's pretty split. I, I think it depends on what you consider more enjoyable to watch. If you are along for the ride, you're probably going to prefer season four because season four has excellent standalone episodes. So you're going to go and watch certain things like that because it's fun. Season seven has a much better arc and a much better villain, but the individual episodes are not as fun to watch. And so like personally, I watch season seven for a handful of episodes, but mostly to get the finale. The finale to me is just like, I love it. I cry every time. Just that moment. I I live for the smile that Buffy has at the end of the season, like and at the end of the series. That is what I'm getting to. So I can deal with season seven. I also really like how they kind of up the epicness of season seven. Buffy just is like so epic. Um, but yeah, I think I agree with a little bit of what both of you are saying, but for you in particular, Tabs, I agree that season four has a much lighter vibe versus season seven. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to be in like a right headspace to watch that season. Yeah. So, all right. Um, okay, let's move on. Um, let's talk about <laughs> Riley because, you know, get our blood boiling, Yay. wake us all up. <laughs> Leah's like, I'm awake now. <laughs> okay, so – this season saw the introduction of a new character, Riley, which is I crazy. Can't as I was just like, as <laughs> I was just to say, sir, yeah, I we was like, just met him this season. He's been here way too long. <laughs> I was like, did we yeah. just meet him? <laughs> well, they just give him so much green time. I mean, it's crazy when you think about Cordelia, who we had her for three seasons, but she didn't really get development until the end of her of season one but it was like the biggest little baby step ever mm-hmm. and then you get biggest to season two step. and 
<laughs> well, it was just like the basics of like, oh, she's a human being. Like, oh, she has emotion. Oh, she has wow. emotion other than liking Xander. Yeah. And so then it was like, then season two, we started to see her actually expand on that and like have compassion. We saw her have selflessness dating Xander and like saw her grow exponentially, especially in comparison to Xander. And then, you know, she leaves in season three and then it's like you have Riley come on and it's like they tried to rush his character development because I think that they got lazy and they didn't want to put in Mm. the work of actually developing him. They just thought that they could put him on the screen a bunch of times and have everyone around him suck, like all of his friends suck, and write in these like kind of quote-unquote good moments for him and think that that was considered character development when it's not it's it's really lazy writing and i think that riley's character suffers the consequences of it well said leah you nailed exactly what they got wrong with him for sure um and I mean, I'll be honest, and I think I said this when we were talking about the episodes, I've never hated Riley, and I went into this rewatch being like, I'm ready to redeem him. He's not as bad as everybody said he yeah. was. And the writing of and him is some of the worst. And we haven't even made it to season five. We I literally know. haven't even made it there yet. <laughs> I know. It's so discouraging. The writing on him is some of the worst they we've seen on this show yet. It genuinely – he's not bad. He's just not likable. They had a really good idea with him, a good concept on making him so immersed in an ideology and then having that stripped away from him. That is compelling stuff. But somehow it didn't go over well. And I think one of the reasons people loathe Riley is because the majority of Buffy's core audience tend to be women or marginalized people groups who have been directly or indirectly hurt by the type of person that holds to the ideologies that Riley does. Mm. And so by creating an everyman, the show inadvertently created a character that is the antithesis of the core tenets of the show. He's pretty much the opposite of Buffy. And so it doesn't mean he can't be a good or compelling character, but it means that the writers needed to work super duper hard on top of the fact that a beloved loved interest Angel was just exiting. So they had an impossible task. Well, I won't say impossible. They had a really hard task, but they dropped the ball on pretty much every level. So it's just They could have just made him normal Joe. Like we did not have to have G.I. Joe. We just wanted normal Joe. Very nice. And like, I don't know. They tried to make him seem a little bit too complex in that exterior. But by doing that, they really just made him, like, confusing personally. Like, I just looked at him and I was like, I just don't get you. Like, you're supposed to be normal. And you're, like, supposed to be, like, this, like, Midwestern, like, good boy, whatever. I hate that I just said good boy, whatever. Um, And then then he's, like, in the military and he's, like, kind of misogynistic. Uh And then doesn't like the Buffy is, like, stronger than him and all these sorts of things. I don't know. I just was like, where are you guys going? Like, I just – I don't understand. I I feel like the point of his character should have been that she dated somebody normal and that he was sweet and he was consistent and he was loyal <clears throat> um, and all these sorts of things. And he didn't really end up being any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I One of uh, the comments is they should have waited a little longer to introduce another boyfriend and actually made him likable. It was too early. Angel is a hard act to follow, which I agree. 
Um, he was too soon. They should have had it be more of a slow burn, in my opinion. Yes, where right. They were friends. More pining. And they just got together as friends and had like Riley just like slowly fall and just be like, mm-hmm. whoa, like Buffy's so dope, and Buffy just kind of be like, Riley's just a friend, you know, and then. In season five, I wouldn't have even had them get together in season four. I would have had them get together in season five and then have them or maybe get together at the end of season four, whatever. Um, And then have them like be, you know, a couple that you're rooting for, because then when Riley does have that kind of betrayal in season five, it would hit so much harder of being like, oh my god, Riley, what are you doing? Your relationship is quote-unquote perfect. Like, you and Buffy love each other. Whereas when it happens in season five, you're almost, like, rooting for him to do something bad so Mm -hmm. that, like, Buffy can finally have an excuse to end it. Like, because that's really what it is, is, like, she's, like, that, like, she was waiting for a catalyst to kind of have a reason to break up with him. I mean, she might not have said that. But, you know. I would add another layer and have her or sorry have him not find out she's a slayer the entire fourth season what we haven't experienced that storyline at all in the entire series other than her mom owen owen like she was he trying was to one juggle. episode though but right uh, but i'm talking about like a whole relationship where he falls for buffy because it was always like buffy and Angel, Buffy, and Angelus, like it was in Buffy and Spike. It's like, like the Slayer and then a demon, which is an. I'm not crapping on that. I love that dynamic. Like, I think that is so interesting. Um, but have some layers between like the person falling for Buffy, and then him finding out like a whole season or I don't know half a season or something super super far, and they've already have established, like mature good relationship outside of her slayer i don't know side i feel like that might have been a cool storyline but i don't know it just it just didn't work for me yeah i you guys kind of already answered my next question which was um what do you think the writers could have done differently with riley and you guys in the comments definitely let us know what you think the writers could have done differently with riley but my next question is do you think they could have done this season accomplished exactly what they were trying to accomplish without Riley. Yes. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if they had had the initiative, no Riley, and just had it mainly been about Maggie. Maggie Walsh. Yeah. And had Maggie Walsh be more of the pole uh, for Buffy to be in um, the initiative, I feel like it almost would have been better because Buffy kind of has this need for authority like this need to appease authority or to like not all authority but like the ones that she respects um and I think that if we had that original storyline of her being drawn to Maggie Walsh and then Giles being you know upset and then she finds out that Maggie heads up the initiative um, it, it can almost be like a bad watcher type of season, which would have been so interesting to see because it's almost like if you take the watcher away, what would Buffy become? Mm-hmm. If she had a bad influence on her, would that corrupt her morality or would it eventually be, would she be able to stand on her own? Like they're just, it would have been so much more interesting than Buffy joining the initiative because her boyfriend told her it would be a good idea. Like, um, 
which I know it goes deeper than that, but I just think, I think Riley, like, weakened the system. Um, I think he just weakened the season. I think, I just, he should have been a side character before he was a main character. I think they threw him in too fast, and Mm. I think it, season four really, it kind of failed because of that. They got rid of all of the great things about season four that could have made good storylines. Some of it wasn't their fault, and some of it for sure was. Like, Oz leaving sucks. Um, Maggie Walsh, apparently she was supposed to stay, and they decided to kill her off, which is worse. So that's their fault. Um, They kill off um, Eddie. No, the the thing with Maggie is she never could stay for the entire time. That was her choice. So, oh, yeah. That again, that was out of their control. Seth Green leaving the actress to play Maggie Walsh. Then maybe pick another Maggie Walsh then, Um, and then have the whole thing around. Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, pick a different. Like, why are you hiring someone that could play an important role? But you're like, oh, I'm going to grab this person who can't be there for half the time. So I have to completely rewrite and like that's dumb that's literally dumb yeah and then someone mm-hmm. mentioned in the comments too like sunday she would have been such a sick oh big my bad yeah and she had good chemistry with sarah michelle geller like it it would have worked so well and i understand like i actually know but because i understand in hindsight now but back then they didn't have a lead female big bad mm-hmm. um I mean, they did with Glory in season five, but we with hadn't had seasons. her yet. Yeah. And so I feel like having the first like female and then having her be a slayer that was turned would have been sick. Well, it also would have tied in very nicely with Restless. Let's say you had Sunday, who was a slayer that turned into a vampire. She's now possibly stronger than Buffy herself. And so you get to the end when Buffy has to conjoin with, you know, do the conjoining spell in order to become powerful enough to be able to defeat Sunday. And then you have a whole commentary on what does it mean to be a slayer. And the antithesis of that is a slayer that is uh, rejecting her her nature or rejecting her calling and beca- has now become a a, a vampire. Oh, like that word. would be such an interesting Sarah, conversation. Also, that would stay on theme too because exactly. this whole season was like, is there a darkness to my like Slayer line? And then well, you have- that's next season, but yeah. Well, they introduced it though. They could have they introduced do. it in this season, season four. is about um, magic Identity. and science. It's identity. Yeah, but again, they could have changed that. But like season four, like, they could have the started this season it again. They could yeah. have started it with Sunday and had some really good dialogue mm-hmm. and mirroring well, it's of about each other. Nature. It, and, and we'll Especially talk about it in after a second. Faith and mm-hmm. her in season three, that would have been such a cool parallel. Yeah. Right. Well, and that they kind of did that with Adam and Riley, but we don't care about them. Let's talk about Buffy. And at very by the end of the season, like Joss came in and probably did some like rewrites and stuff, but you can you can see where they kind of have a little bit of the parallels between Riley and Buffy, but they were so slim and they weren't well-defined that it doesn't have as big of an impact as previous seasons where there was parallels between Faith and Buffy and Angel and Buffy, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, I – you guys have all pretty much said what I was going to say. I think that either don't have Riley in the season at all 
have Xander be a part of the initiative, keep Maggie Walsh, but give her more of a mentoring role to Willow and have Xander feel like he's really a part of something and have him look up to Maggie. And then you have Buffy possibly joining the initiative, but that creates a rift between Giles and the rest of them. And then Buffy turns on the initiative and that puts a rift between her, Willow, and Xander. And then like it gives everybody more to do. It makes it more compelling. Um or you could keep Riley, but you really flesh out who he is, what his motivations are, what makes him relatable to the audience, then have Maggie make Riley her Adam. And now Buffy has to fight against the both of them, and she has to realize, okay, do I kill a human? Can I kill a human? Does that go against my code of ethics? So I just think they could have done a much more compelling job, but I don't know. Maybe they were trying to make season four kind of want want because they wanted season five to pack a punch, but I don't know. It kind of just fell flat on all ends. All right. So real fast, let's talk about Buffy and Riley's relationship. Um, I honestly did not realize how much of the writers uh, were foreshadowing the end of Buffy and Riley's relationship, even from the literal first start of their relationship. I mean, the episode that they technically started dating is called Doomed. (laughs) It's so bad, you guys. I also did not realize how problematic Riley became in season four. I, I just thought season five is when he really started to being like kind of nasty and not nasty, but just like grating and stuff and insecure. But the seeds are planted here in season four. The fact that he literally bullies Buffy into a relationship. Um, and it's just, it's crazy. I didn't realize that it was this bad. And maybe that's just because I don't watch the season very much. Well, and we, we see him consistently not believe Buffy. He doesn't believe her words. He doesn't respect her emotions. Like when she kind of puts up boundaries of like, I can't talk about this right now. I can't do this right now. Like he doesn't respect it. He doesn't listen. He doesn't take Mm. her seriously. Um, And I think that's ultimately why it becomes such an issue in season five is because Buffy ultimately needs to kind of put her foot down and be like, you need to take me seriously. Like what Mm -hmm. my job is, is serious and all this stuff. And I think that hits Riley right at his core because he has this realization of like, oh, like I'm, she doesn't need me. I'm doing nothing. Like, and that, I think that really affects him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's later on to the fact that he feels useless in all other areas of his life. Um, I think about in this episode in Restless, we have that moment where Riley says, I've come looking for a man. And then he looks at the audience and says, a salesman. And you literally have him talking to Harmony with the milk pails. And then Buffy's just kind of like lounging on the couch. And I feel like this moment perfectly foreshadows Buffy and Riley's relationship in season five. Riley soliciting a vampire while Buffy is literally right there looking bored over there. And he's talking, you know, he's talking to Harmony. Um, Passion the Nerd points out that Buffy finding Riley, I thought this was hilarious. Buffy finding Riley in her dream implies that he's not one of her friends since she found him and can't find the others. While on a literal level, the first layer isn't attacking him because he wasn't a part of the spell. She's also intentionally holding, uh, the first layer is also intentionally holding the others hostage because she realizes what they mean to Buffy. She doesn't touch Riley, meaning that she recognizes that Riley is not a part of Buffy's circle that makes her stronger and gives her strength. And so I think that right there is kind of a huge indicator that maybe Riley isn't as important in Buffy's life as he thinks. I don't know that anyone really thinks that at this point, but you know. The show seems to be trying pretty hard, even though they're laying down some pretty heavy hints that nothing's going to happen between them. 
Um, we also have in Buffy's dream, Riley says, okay, killer. That's how you want it. Then he walks away. Um, and then Joss said this. <laughs> he says, uh, when Buffy or when Riley rejects Buffy dressed as a civilian, not as a soldier, Joss says, later on, we will see the side of her that really is primal in season five. And we can see the demon within, sort of. And Riley can't seem to handle that. So it's very clear that Joss at this point was laying groundwork for season five in recognizing that it is the Slayer side of Buffy that Riley can't handle. And oh, I can't wait till you guys listen to our Buffy versus Dracula episode. We've already recorded it and stuff. Um, and there's just some really, really interesting stuff about Riley. There's even stuff that they they actually cut out about Riley that was in the script for that episode um, that would have fleshed him out more. And they ended up actually cutting it all out. And so you're left with what we see on screen and I won't say too much because you'll hear us talk about it later, but there's just like some really interesting choices where it's like, you guys don't actually care about Riley at all. And then I read this uh, in Doomed at our very end, uh, or at the very end of our episode, kind of in our spoiler, five minute spoiler section. But Shane Jill's review says this, and I really, really like this. He says, I've always felt that Buffy made a compromise with herself in this episode in Doomed. She never truly opens herself up to Riley and leaves herself vulnerable. She holds him at arm's length. It's like she decided that she's willing to try a relationship with Riley, but she won't run the risk of getting hurt again to the extent that she did with Angel. The same thing happens with Spike in season six and seven. Buffy never truly opens her heart to someone after her relationship with Angel falls apart. This is one of the primary reasons why Riley leaves her in the next season. Um, and honestly, I don't blame I don't blame Buffy for this. And she truly gave all that she could give to Riley, but for Riley, that wasn't enough. Um, and yeah, we'll talk more about that next season for sure. Okay, let's talk about Xander now. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, let's get through rid of all like through all the stuff that we don't want to talk about so we can talk about all the good stuff. Um, no, but there actually is some stuff to talk about Xander. Okay, so this season we saw a huge improvement with Xander, or did we? Was it just Xander wasn't on screen mm -hmm. very much? I can't decide. <laughs> um, either way, other than really where the wild things are, he wasn't that bad. Um, and I was talking with Sam on Instagram, uh, and they were saying that they didn't understand how a bunch of sex innuendos flushed out his character and with it regards to this episode. And they really don't mention his father again or what Xander went through at all, which is so disappointing. It could have really helped us as the audience understand him better. And I agree. So many people do tend to forget about this this scene um, with him and his father uh, when it comes to episodes like Hell's Bells. And I'm not trying to justify Xander's behavior, never ever, only trying to understand it. But so many characters on this show have tragic backstories and awful parental figures and do horrible things. For some reason, though, we tend to not be as sympathetic towards Xander in episodes like Hell's Bells. And I'm curious, why do you guys think it's so hard for people to understand and empathize with Xander's unfortunate decision to not marry Anya, especially after seeing what he thinks is his future? And it looks just like this moment here in Restless. Here's the thing about Hell's Bells. I understand him in that episode. Do I think he should have done – walked – away from her or do I think that he should have broken up with her um yes but not at the altar I think it was very obvious uh how he was feeling for honestly most of season six which kind of sucks I feel like we barely mm -hmm. got any time with them being like really happy and excited when he mm -hmm. literally proposed the finale of season five um I feel like the only season that's like really like 
Xander and Anya happy is like season five. Um, I kind of mourn the relationship when he proposes. It's kind of sad, but it's true. But I, when it comes to Hell's Bells, I am a sucker for nuances in family dynamics, nuances with upbringing, um, how that, that, you know, really just trains your brain to view people and to view love and to view relationships and commitment and um, all that sort of stuff. So I understand his triggers. I understand his process that day. Um, I understand his flight mentality. I, but what I don't quite understand is the fact that like, even when it was at the very end shown that it was like, like a, a red herring. It was like, it was false or whatever. And the love of his life is sitting there crying being like, I want you like this was like wrong like the, I mean, this wasn't true like I'm going to make this work. I feel like even cuz I could see myself spiraling the way that he did. Absolutely. If someone put a fake future in front of me of w- my worst nightmare in marriage, I, I would be spiraling. I'd probably want to be running away too like being for real. Um but I feel like if the love of my life is in there being like that's false I will always love you. I will always be here. Like all that sort of stuff. I feel like I would like relent. I'd come out of that fog. But then again, it's like Xander's never really shown a lot of emotional intelligence. <laughs> and he is really, really young in hindsight for getting married. Um, we keep forgetting that like two seasons before, or actually season six, three seasons before he was in high school. So he's what, like 20? Maybe, maybe 21. So, like, he's a baby. So, I I feel like people are a little bit too harsh with him. And I can't believe I'm saying that. Uh, on Hell's Bells, only because I get it. I just don't. I think it should have happened beforehand. And I feel like if she really was the love of his life, I really do feel like he would have been able to get out of it and get married at the that conversation at the very end when they find out that wasn't that wasn't true i here's the thing i agree mostly with tabby i i don't necessarily fault xander so much for leaving on hell's bells i fault him more for not leaving sooner um Mm -hmm. or not communicating there's so many times in season six where you see him like kind of shut down when he should be communicating Mm -hmm. um and that's why there is that blow up at Hell's Bells is because he hasn't been communicating for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what he did was it wasn't thought out and it did hurt Anya. But I, I wouldn't say that it was so much of a selfish decision. Um, yeah, because, I think he thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. legitimately. So yeah. I don't I don't look at Hell's Bells and I go, oh, Sanders is a scumbag, which I'm sure mm. some people do. And I, I don't think that that's – like, that's okay. You can think that. Um, I think that he was a guy who was – he had a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, and he didn't want to bring that on someone he loved. And I think that – I understand that fear, and I think that I don't fault him for his reaction, I fault him for the fact that he didn't try and fix it sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, 
I don't fault I don't fault anyone in that episode, honestly. I don't fault Anya for her reaction. I mm-hmm. don't fault Xander for leaving. Like I'm a firm believer in until until you are up there saying your vows, you yeah. are justified in leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so much better than marrying someone because the out wrong of duty. Person. Yeah. 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 And I know some people may not agree with that, but I just so I don't necessarily fault him for that. Um I think Xander does grow in this season. I don't think it's as much as we are meant to believe he does. Um, But I I do think he does. Um, It just pisses me off that I feel like his episode in Restless was not shown on his growth. It was just shown on what they think Xander would be fearful of. Um, I just think, I don't know. I don't like Xander's character. For the majority of the show. And I think that's why people struggle to sympathize with him because it's a lot easier to like Anya and a lot easier to sympathize with Anya versus Xander, Mm -hmm. who's been absolutely awful to Buffy a lot of time. I just Mm -hmm. think it's like they didn't even give him a chance in Restless. Like, why did (laughs) so many things need to be sexual? Like, we get it. That's in his mind. Again, I felt like it was lazy writing. Like, why did Mm. it... All of the other ones were so in their subconscious. Like, it was so fears that you're like, you kind of knew they were fearful of it, but you Mm -hmm. see and you're like, oh my gosh. Whereas Xander's the only one you have is is the one of his dad. It's like, why wasn't there real gut-wrenching things in there? Most of it was just sexual stuff. Like, why do we need Mm. to have that thing with Joyce? Like, it's just stuff like that where I'm like, like, why? Like, I just don't understand. It's like, uh, I just feel like they didn't give him a chance. So, Pasha the Nerd has a hypothesis on why uh, everything was so sexual, um, and you guys have to let me know what you think about this. So, I've been saying this for a couple seasons now, and we saw this back in um, – oh, I don't remember. It was back in like some season with – I think it was with Xander and Cordelia where Xander's talking about how like he wants to be more than – oh, yeah. Xander was tired of making out in the closet with Cordelia. He actually wanted to make it a real thing. Cordelia was fine with just keeping it in the closet. But then moving on to season three when Faith and Xander have sex and Xander's like expecting to snuggle afterwards and and, uh, Faith's like, okay, that was great. Like one time fling, bye. Um, And then he has that traumatic moment where she assaults him and stuff like that. Um, I I really do believe that what Xander wants is intimacy and he does struggle with conflating – sex as true intimacy, which sex can help with intimacy. Absolutely. But you have to have more than that. You have to have communication. You have to have respect. Um, you have to have, you know, all that stuff that comes with the relationship other than other than sex. And because Xander has not had a good relationship with his parents and because he's desiring that closeness, he's going to sex for that. And so I think that's what Joss was trying to say. And Pastor Leonard says this. He says, the conversation with Joyce highlights part of Xander's driving pathology. This exchange is saying that Xander is subconsciously conflating sex and conquest with love and comfort. Clearly, he doesn't get love and affection at home. His desire for that which he confuses as sexual is what drives his journey into the heart of darkness. There are only two women he didn't sexualize in his dream, and we noted this as well, Anya and Buffy. Anya because they've had sex and he still is in the basement. So he knows that that relationship is part of his ongoing reality and not a means of escape. And Buffy, who has already turned him down, that relationship is a closed door as a means of escape. 
Ultimately, the dream leaves him only one remaining option, and his father descending the stairs and rendering Xander heartless fulfills Xander's worst fear of turning into him. So Passion the Nerd is saying that Xander's trying to escape getting out of the basement, and the basement represents his shame, represents his fear. Um, and so he sees a relationship as being able to not feel shame anymore, to feel acceptance and love. And so he's like, okay, I'm, I'm with Anya right now, and this is not giving me what I want. This is not getting me out of the shame spiral because who ultimately can get Xander out of that himself? Um, And so I think that, which is an interesting commentary on itself because you're like, okay, if Xander's already like thinking this about Anya, things don't bode well. So it's interesting how we're having Riley and Buffy over here and Xander and Anya. Neither of those relationships really turn out super great. Um, But then Buffy completely friend zones him. And so he eventually resigns himself to the fact that, oh man, that means that I'm just ultimately doomed to just turn into my father. However, and this is where I'm curious about your guys' thoughts. Do you guys think they could have done that with it not being all so focused on the sexual? Like, what would you have done different? Well, that's what I was going to say is, like, if you really wanted to convey the message that it's all about his fear of intimacy, like connecting, what he could have done is have a dream where he goes to have sex with someone and they shut him down and they like embarrass him and like have something like that where he's like trying to connect or have on the opposite end have him be trying to talk with Anya or whoever you know about something serious and all they're trying to do is have sex and he's like kind of pushing him off and being like no no like you're not hearing me that would have been so powerful to like view that and see him just trying so deeply to connect and all they want is sex if they took it that route where it was like every conversation he had with a woman was them just trying to have sex I would get that message more so of like oh my gosh he just wants to connect but when you just like take it as like he wants to keep having sex it doesn't read that way they kind of played to crumbs for that with him and Faith's relationship for one episode and then they just Mm -hmm. went past it and I thought that was a really interesting dynamic um because from a boy who talks so much about sex and then all of a sudden gets it and is like I want to cuddle with you afterwards is an interesting dynamic um I'm not quite sure if I still love the idea of like it's it's the whole like confusing boy thing it's like they say one thing and then they actually really mean the other thing so girls really have to like <laughs> sit there and decipher everything the guys, they're just not really fully honest half the time. Um, not to say that you could have sex and also want to like, you know, be in a loving, committed relationship. Those things totally can go together. But um, I think that Xander has always just been very um, – he objectifies people a ton. And so he doesn't give off that vibe of at least the first few seasons that he's like, no, I actually want like a committed, loving relationship and I'm terrified of that. Um, and so I think it, it – it could have been cool if we went in that later on, like Leah said, and had maybe some um, – or even he goes through a breakup with Anya or something, and then he just is single for a long time, and he doesn't say a word. He's, like, growing on his own. He's, like, not trying to date people. Like, I don't know. There, there could have been different storylines that we could have done with this that could have made it normal like a normal thing. I feel like sometimes in TV shows, like we, I mean, we know about this in, um, in Angel, the show Angel, like 
the writers or whatever wanted a relationship so they like kind of shoehorned cordelia and angel together um and it just didn't work so i just feel like sometimes i feel like it's not realistic for people to constantly be finding the next of love with their life immediately after the other um some people do do that like some people like like go straight into another relationship and they're genuinely like so into them and i don't know it just it works out for them so you could have characters like that and then uh i mean that worked out for willow like she had three back-to-back even though i don't think that kennedy is love her life no it didn't work for willow (laughs) kennedy (laughs) kennedy did Um, not work (laughs) but i feel like and i wanted that for buffy like buffy like really just kind of felt like she was she's always been going through it but every season something different and i really wanted her to be single single for Mm -hmm. an entire season like season five is her like people say is her single season but it's like Uh, you know they're going somewhere with it so you're like is she really yeah also her and and riley broke up in like episode 11 that's almost that's actually half the season so Mm -hmm. yeah um i think with xander i really just wanted to see and they had a golden opportunity to kind of showcase xander and anya's relationship it would have been so interesting in this episode if they had shown how deeply xander actually cares for anya because We've been watching Anya really pursuing this relationship with him and him kind of being like standoffish. And let's delve into it's because maybe Xander's afraid of his emotions. He's afraid of showing affection and care and love because of his parents. And this would have been such an interesting thing to delve into how much Xander actually does care for Anya. And then maybe in the dream sequence, show his fear of Anya leaving more and more about her becoming a vengeance demon. Just things like that, I think would have gone over so much better with audiences than just it being like, okay, Xander has mommy issues. So therefore he's going to sexualize all of the women. Okay, cool. Check. All right. Xander has daddy issues. Therefore let's show how every single father figure is letting him down or you know, whatever it is. And so I think it just, it got, it got frustrating and it got old. It felt like they were repeating the same, the same theme over and over and over again. And we talked about this too. And that was the longest dream sequence. And you're like, okay, the visuals are all very interesting, but like we got it the first time, you know? So I get what they're trying to do. I appreciate the added layer and depth to Xander's um, character, but it's also frustrating knowing we're not going to hear a single blip about it until Hell's Bells, and then that's just it for the rest of the series. And it's just that's part of the pro- it's part of the frustration with this episode for me is some of these character arcs got cut short or just never were fully fleshed out, and so in a lot of ways, some of the character arcs stop here, and that just makes it really frustrating because you could you see where it could go, you know, so. All right, let's talk about Willow. Um, Tabby, you brought this up, I think, in season two, and I've never been unable to see it. But you mentioned that Willow doesn't like working through her emotions, um, instead wants to suppress them or band-aid them with other things. We saw this with Miss Calendar. We saw this with Buffy and Angelus, where Willow was like, hey, like, come to the bronze and hang out. Like, why are you moping? Like, get over it already. Um And we saw this on a more extreme level with Wild at Heart and then with Something Blue. First, she tried to harm Oz because of her pain, but ultimately doesn't go through with it. And then she tries to take away her pain by creating a spell. And then we saw a shift this season where she's starting to delve more into the idea of vengeance. And she's kind of edging into vengeance territory instead of dealing with her emotions. And obviously, this is going to be huge in the next few seasons. But it's been really interesting. Willow has some of the coolest – 
like organic shifts in character over the next or like over the six seasons, I would say. Um, so it's really interesting to watch her kind of like organically evolve from I don't really like emotions that's uncomfortable and icky. So I'm just going to like not talk about it to, okay, now I'm going to actively try to change my emotions about things. Okay. That's not working well. So I'm now going to try and change your emotions about things. And we, we know where that ends up. So Passion of the Nerd says the shot of Oz and Tara talking at the very end of Willow's dream sequence, he says, I think points to the fact that her dream really isn't about sexuality. That has been a part of it as it is a part of her identity, but both Oz and Tara find her worthy of abuse, meaning gay or straight doesn't matter. Either way, she's just afraid some part of her intrinsic being inevitably means she isn't worthy of being loved. Broadly, her wardrobe is tied to her magical awakening, and for the rest of the series, Willow will struggle with an attachment to magic as the only thing that makes her special and not that pained and lowly sophomore. So um, I came up with a really interesting correlation and it made me like the episode slightly more, just slightly though. But um, while I absolutely hate this episode, you guys remember season seven, The Killer in Me and the premise of that? Um, where Leah's like, no, it's the episode where Willow um, has a glamour put on her and she looks like Warren. Yeah. And she thinks that she eventually starts turning into Warren. Uh, so, and Kennedy is the one that comforts her. And that's a whole other thing. We're just going to ignore that aspect of it. But that episode is important thematically because it forces Willow to come face to face with the reality of her suppressed emotions. Um, but again, it's about a costume, right? And I love that it ties back to this episode. She's now wearing. Her worst fear is realized when she's now wearing the actual face and body of Tara's killer and the costume that she has normally, like because she sees her normal outfits as costumes, is gone. Um, and now all that anyone sees is who she really is and who she thinks she is and she has to come to terms with that. So that makes me a little bit more excited to talk about that episode and a little bit more excited that maybe there'll be some stuff to talk about Willow in season seven, but I never made that correlation before and I thought that was interesting. So what do you guys think of Willow's character development this season? I think it's very subtle. I think that if you don't know what's going to happen with her her character, season four doesn't raise any alarms. It's, you think that it's just normal Willow, like, you know, she um, starts dating Tara, says goodbye to Oz, like, and... She has a lot going on this season. She has a lot going on, but it's just like you just kind of don't really notice any change. Um, You just kind of think like, oh, she's just getting more comfortable in herself. You know, Um, you also are rooting for her change. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you get in season five and you look back and you're like, oh, there was a lot going on. It wasn't all good change. Some of it was a little bit of bad. And her (laughs) confidence, a lot of it was rooted in magic. It wasn't rooted in herself. It was rooted in her abilities and her strength through being able to control things. And it wasn't about her being confident in who she was. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I think it's really, season four is one of those seasons where it lays a lot more groundwork than you think. Because then you get to season five and you're like, oh, I didn't see that. Even with Riley, like you kind of just think he's like a normal, like annoying guy. You're like, oh, he's just kind of misogynistic or whatever. And season five comes season around, five, you're like, oh, you're like, what? Oh, this guy has like deep issues. Like he needs <laughs> therapy. Um, but I liked Willow in season four. 
I think she's very interesting in season four. I almost wish we had more of her in season four. Um, mm. I think that her and Xander, I feel like I don't see them a lot in season four. Maybe it's because Riley. Um, <clears throat> hmm, I wonder but, what that is. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that Willow's um, storyline is it's about to ramp up really fast. I feel like season four is like a huge um, transition in Will's character in general, in all aspects. We start to see a little bit more like, like if I was Will's friend, season four Willow would make me kind of um, feel the need to observe her more when it comes to magic. Like the whole like Veruca scenario where she was going to do something to her or Oz. It was to Oz. It was. She's okay. going to do it to Oz. Yeah. It, even just like we've talked about it too. Like um, the Something Blue episode was played off as laughs. And I thought it – and it, it's a hilarious episode. But I was like very concerned rewatching it. I was like, oh my gosh, this girl is not okay. Like, yeah. she, she needs to go into therapy for how she's not handling her emotions at all. Um, I will always say that I feel like Willow's character, her and Buffy, are the most well-written characters of Buffy. Um, everything they do makes sense to me for their psyche, for how they set up the characters. Um, even when I dislike something that they do, it makes sense to me um, because of all the work they've done. And I feel like I have been like Buffy and I have been like Willow in times of my life. And I feel like it makes absolute sense for somebody to feel um, rejected, for somebody to feel not seen, for somebody to feel not wanted in high school, um, to just like be a little bit catatonic anytime somebody has any criticism about them. It's like, it's like it feels like you're being rejected all over again. It's a huge trigger. Um, I remember feeling that when I was like 18, 19, like, like I, I felt like I was like getting new friends and I was like, oh my word, I have like this friend group and like all these people in my life. And then it's like someone has like a criticism that is completely fair and maybe they're doing it out of love and they love you and they're not like doing it in a way of like, like trying to hurt you or trying to reject you or um, saying that you're wrong, saying that you're bad or any of these things. And all that I'm hearing is like, oh, it's happening again or like, I'm angry because, like, I may see myself in a certain way or um, I'm afraid they see me in a certain way and they're wrong. And, like, I've only ever been somebody who's been patient and waiting for this and I'm nice. And, like, I, I just – it's somebody who needs to go to therapy and it's somebody who, like, <laughs> just emotionally is very triggered by, like, anything negative and friendships and relationships. Um, and her not wanting to deal with things is just, like – it. Out of all the characters, for her to have the responses that she has during really intense times um, makes the most sense to me. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm saying the same things all over again. But yeah, I season four Willow strikes up some orange flags to me. Um, and she's still Willow and she always will be just Willow. But like just Willow has always encompassed the side of her. And season yeah. one. Just so, Willow has always just yeah. wanted control. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the easiest way for her to not feel the emotion she's not comfortable with is for her to control something else that she feels like she is good at. 
All right, let's talk about Giles. Uh, this one was actually really interesting to me uh, watching the episode and stuff. So we see Giles wrestling between his duty as a watcher, his love for Buffy, and then also like kind of like torn in there is like, okay, do I should I pursue my own life? Um, do any of these other things fit into my life anymore? So this episode, and I did not, I did not see it until we were watching it and talking about it, but this episode draws heavily on helpless. Um, and then also in Get It Done, which we'll talk about Get It Done in, in a minute. But so the shadow men in Get It Done, as we find out, become the Watchers and continue the tradition of teaching the Slayer. And Giles follows that tradition in Helpless and drugging, lying to, and endangering Buffy. And in this episode, we continue to see him repeating some of the same ideas he's believed his entire life. A Slayer needs a Watcher. But in fact, it is the other way around as we find out in Get It Done. The Watchers need the Slayers. Giles believes that the first Slayer is the way she is, and he says that thing at the very end. After all, you couldn't know. You you, you never had a watcher. Um, and so Giles thinks that the first Slayer is the way that she is and doesn't know any better because she's never had a watcher before. But the irony is she is the way that she is because of the watchers. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about like looking at espe especially Buffy and Giles's dream sequences become so much more fleshed out once you've seen season seven. And that's, that's one of the things I love about season seven is they really delve into the Slayer line and what it means to be a Slayer and stuff. Um, and it just uh, – it's so good. I eat that stuff up. Um, but in Get It Done, we find out that the Slayer gets her power from the essence of a demon. We see the suitcase that we – be passed to Buffy from Robin's mother containing the shadow puppets. Here it is the primordial mud in there, not the puppets, which Passion Leonard refers to as a symbol for the spell they cast. So the Shadowman will try to force the power of the Slayer upon her by chaining her to the earth. And we see the first Slayer in chains above Buffy's bed at the beginning of her section of the episode, which is kind of a cool nod later on. Um, but also something else I was thinking about. So in The Freshman, Giles runs up to Buffy at the very end of the episode. You know, he has like all his gear and he's like ready to help her defeat Sunday. He says, Buffy, I've been up all night. I know I'm supposed to teach you self-reliance, but I'm not leaving you out there to fight alone. The hell with what's right. I'm ready to back you up. Let's find that evil and fight it together. So right off the bat, we have a bit of foreshadowing of Giles leaving in season six. And I do find Giles's verbiage interesting in that moment in that he sees himself helping Buffy as not what he's supposed to do. And I think that part of him that is saying that is the same part of him that drugs Buffy and helpless. It's always what's been done. And like we see that in this episode, he says from the beginning of time, like this is how men and women have always like related to each other. This is how it's always been done. Therefore, this must be the right thing to do, which is a trap we all fall into. And interestingly enough, is what this entire season is about with Riley just falling in line and doing what the initiative and Maggie Walsh have told him because that's just what he's always done. There's no thinking critically about it. You just kind of fall in line because you're like, well, this is what the mass amount of people are doing. Therefore, it must be the right way. And so we're seeing Giles kind of wrestling a little bit with that because he's trying to kind of break out of the watcher's mentality and the normalcy of what the watchers have told him is right and what they've told him is wrong. Um, and as with any of us, we're never going to fully break out of that. There's going to be stuff that's in our lives that's always going to pop up. We're like, oh, wait a minute. Let me actually like evaluate, evaluate that and think critically. Um, and I, I, we see once again that he has this war inside of him of his responsibility versus his love for Buffy. 
Um, and we talked about this in a spoiler-free episode, but the callbacks to Helpless was a time when Giles was fully buying into the Watcher role. And that's the first time it really butt into his relationship with Buffy and his his view of her even as young and childlike. Um, and in the end, you know, his words to Sinea. And I think I wrote this essay on Instagram and talking about how part of what makes Helpless so terrifying is the way that it takes Giles and kind of makes him the villain of the episode in a way. And they compare him with Kralik. And the writers carefully straddle the line between completely villainizing Giles while also making it very clear that what he is doing is wrong. And I want to note that he thinks he's doing the right thing in that episode until he realizes that it's wrong, which is similar to his words in The Freshman where he chooses his relationship with Buffy over what is, I say in quotes, the right thing. So while subtle, the episode draws parallels. And so my question for you guys is, with seeing this pattern of Giles with wrestling with his responsibility and his relationship with Buffy, do you think the writers were being consistent with his character and having him leave in season six? And choosing to go behind Buffy's back in season seven. Like, do you think that's consistent or is it completely out of character? Choosing to go behind Buffy's back, I think it's consistent. I mean, we see Um, him make that decision even in season five where he mm -hmm. kills Ben and doesn't tell Buffy. And um, we definitely see him kind of undermine Buffy sometimes and think that he has the best overall judgment. Um. I don't think him leaving in season six was in character. I think it would have made more sense if he left in season five when Buffy seemed to have everything under control before Joyce died, obviously. Um, But if he left like early season five, um, because he thought, you know what? She's got her mom. She's got it under control. She doesn't need me. That would have made sense. If he thought, oh, I'm not of use here, I'm going to leave, I would get it. But leaving in season six when Buffy was so obviously at her lowest, it just, or leaving in season five. He left season six or season five? Six. Sorry, season six, he's six. when he cool. left. I was, I didn't remember if it was the end of season five when he leaves. Yeah. Like after the finale. He's like, well, Buffy's dead. Peace out. That would have been just like sadder. Oh, yeah, that's I was right. like taking off. We'd be like, season five. But it just was out of character. Like it, the timing didn't make sense. It, I don't think it made sense. I, oh, this is such a tricky question, Sarah. I know. I, I'm sorry. It's something I really yeah. hadn't thought about until I was like, oh man, like, is that out of character? Yeah. Or is that just like, he's starting to shift in his values. Season six, him leaving. I agree. Absolutely out of character. Like no part of me can rationalize actual Giles making that decision. Like, he was in agony over the fact that that Buffy had died. Like, that's his worst nightmare, right? She comes back to life and is, like Leah said, so clearly not in a good place, but also just, like, not even just saying details of how she's feeling. You feel like you can put two and two together. Like, I love how the Scooby gang's, like, I'm blinded by all the things that Buffy's clearly going through because we've been talking about it for seasons, how she's felt burdened. Um, and she sacrifices herself, come back, and everyone, no one's asking questions. No one's being like, hey, are you good? Like, everyone's like, like, ah, she's back. And she's just so grateful we brought her back from the dead. Like, no one's like asking. <laughs> no, they're she like, why aren't grateful. you grateful? Yeah. Now, gosh, pay for your house so we can continue to live in it. Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, there's some storylines that really just piss me off still to this day for real. But, like, him then, like, being like, Peace after that makes like I actually 
like it's actually laughable sometimes. I'm like, guys, if he if Tony Head can't come back, and I am a little bit grateful that they kind of made it so that he could come back because he comes back in season seven. Um, but and don't be mad at me. But if you're not, if you're thinking he's not going to come back, maybe kill him off. Maybe that's why Buffy <laughs> in season six has like a little bit more of a harder time. Like it would make a little bit more sense. Uh, what I'm basically saying is, if Jaws is not going to be there, he's going to be dead. Like you know what I mean? Like he's not going <laughs> right. to choose to leave. Like yeah. I don't want him to die, but like he's not going to choose to leave, especially like three episodes after Be- Buffy comes back from the dead. Like, are you joking? He's literally her watcher. Like, he gets all choked up and, like, Buffy vs. Dracula when she says that she needs him to be her watcher again. And he's like, I have, like, my purpose again. I have, like, I've always ever wanted and seen myself as, like, Buffy's, like, father figure and her watcher and, like, all these things. And, like, it just does not make sense to me. Now, season seven. I'd love to say it's out of character. I think that some parts of it is out of character and then some parts of it is taken too far and they've taken what is in his character to a huge extreme. Um, I don't know if it's fully believable. Are we talking about what happens in um, Lies My Parents? The Lies My Parents? Okay, yeah, yeah. I figured. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's like I, the big Giles moment. The only Giles yeah. moment in season seven, fortunately. I Okay, this is hard because I – genuinely not well versed in season seven to be honest because again i don't like last seasons of shows that i watch um so i don't love going back and watching them um the air of it just feels different and season seven of buffy specifically everyone is just so like fractioned or not fractioned fractured, fractured. yeah and, or just like there's lots of tension and People aren't as close as they used to be. And a lot of it does get mended really too quickly at the very end, especially with what happened two episodes beforehand. But I I don't have a good like to stand on when it comes to like the buildup of their relationship in season seven because it's been so long. Um, there are crumbs um, throughout the series that he – like you guys said that he makes decisions – outside of what Buffy wants. I just don't, maybe not that I don't buy, but I just don't get or understand him wanting to like kill Spike. I understand that like, I don't know. It's been a long time, but like, am am I, am I wrong for thinking that it's like his, his opinion was he's being influenced by the first. So he's like harming people and doesn't remember and um, no that's not in there so i'll, I'll give you a little reasoning? bit of so his reasoning is he believes that spike is distracting buffy from the mission and she's too focused on spike therefore she's not actually taking the first threat seriously um which it's the one time in the entire show that i actually disagree with buffy and agree with somebody else over her because i because you think okay. that spike should have died in that moment uh yeah, hands he down. Had, I think Spike should have died in season six. He had six. a soul back. No, I'm talking about in seven. He has a soul. Why would you kill someone with a soul? Well, so here's the thing. And that that episode, oh man, I don't want to get into it too much, but on an overview of the season, I think there was far too much attention put on Spike. And a lot of people tend to blame the potentials as taking up airtime when there's just a lot of time put on Spike and it could have been put on to Willow 
and Xander and like and Giles and stuff like that. So Giles wanting to kill Spike in that moment when um it was it was also partly a revenge thing from Robin to Robin approaches him saying, hey, we need to kill him because he's being triggered by the chip in his brain. Because it's like the early one morning was just yeah, I remember was that. Yeah, yeah, that whole thing. Yeah. So they Robin's using that and kind of manipulating Giles a little bit and saying, hey, Spike is dangerous. We need to off him because look, he can go off at any point. At one point he like tries to attack Buffy and others. And Giles it doesn't like and We'll talk about it, but there's a part of the script that was actually cut out where Giles uh, tells Buffy that Spike needs to go because Spike tried to to rape her, and I'm like, yeah. And so Giles is it's he's coming from the relationship aspect, so he's and I'm kind of like saying what I think about the episode and stuff, and I'm answering my own question, but. Giles has always chosen his relationship with Buffy over what he thinks he should do. But in season six, he chooses what he thinks is best for Buffy over his relationship with her. And I think in season seven, he kind of does the same thing. Um, and someone, I think it was it Sam or someone wrote down here. Oh, it was Addie. She says, how their relationship evolved in season seven makes sense if we're seeing it as a parent and child relationship. And the angle that season seven is trying to come at is it's about power. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to show Giles usurping and questioning Buffy's power and her her authority because they're trying to point back to his Watcher roots and say, oh, this is the Watcher coming back in and saying, listen to me. I know what's best. You're my slayer. Um, but it and, – and then, of course, it's shown to be wrong because Giles – or because Buffy's supposed to come in and be like, no, like I have no more of a need for you. I think you've taught me all that I can I can learn now. And then she shuts the door in his face. So – I, mean, I don't know if that gives you more was, context. I mean, he never was um, a fan of Angel, so I think it does make sense that he's not a fan of Spike. Oh, I, he was a fan of Angel up until he killed Jenny. Well, no, I mean, I know that. I'm just not talking about like the whole demon part of Angel and Spike. He thinks very similarly about both of them. Um, like he never trusts them. He's kind of like on edge around them. Like doesn't love the fact that Buffy's with somebody that can be that dangerous. Um, I and I think you and I disagree on this, Sarah. I think that I kind of agree. I see what Giles is saying, but I kind of agree with Buffy in a sense that she saw Angel have his redemption, and they talked about it, and she helped faith or try to help faith through hers and we saw from a viewer's standpoint the angel series angel helping faith as well get through mm -hmm. redemption and she was like i want to be that person for spike um and help walk through it um i it's just kind of sucky that it's like that comes right after seeing red because if that whole episode just didn't exist i'd be all here for her and be like this is beautiful. That's great. And it's like, I understand because it's right. like, I, I, and I think it's, it's difficult because it's like, there's Faith too, who's had, who's done stuff, but like, I don't know. I just feel like the way that they showed Spice yeah. was a little bit different. Um, and I get what you're saying, Taps, and I, I do agree with, you know, Buffy, as she tells, she tells Robin that she doesn't have time for vendettas at the end of that episode. And she's like, I have a bigger, I have a bigger thing going on right now. I need Spike. And which I is valid. I get the optics of that episode are tricky because you have 
um, Robin, a black man, fighting Spike, who is wearing his he who murdered his mother in cold blood and is wearing his mother's black leather. Oh, coat. I'm on not on the defense you know for I mean? Spike that episode. I've never right. once have said he was right. right in that episode. I'm talking about more of just like the objective of the show and its morals. Like sure. the reasons why they would have Spike and Buffy view that way towards Spike and how to help him walk sure. along that journey. I just think totally. it takes away – this is my whole issue with the whole Buffy thing. It takes away the the beauty and the feminism and the power of Buffy's character by having them have this relationship before all this happens. Because imagine how beautiful it would be if they didn't have a relationship and she was like, you're still kind of my enemy – and you have a chip in your brain, and yeah, you just got a soul, and I don't really care to have you around, but I'm going to like walk through this with you. When I watch that sometimes in season seven, based on what you've already had in their relationship, a part of me is kind of like, is this a trauma response like are yeah, you like helping him because like I, I mean I, I don't know if that's I don't think that's necessarily the case but like I'm going through these different things in my brain about it I'm like mm -hmm. is it because she still has feelings for him that she's helping him is it because she like does really solely want to help him which I do think it is because Buffy's a good person so she is trying to help him mm -hmm. and like be that person that Angel needed um, when he got his soul but I'm also being like oh is this also a trauma response do you also have feelings for him like I'm just going through a lot of different things in my brain and I think mm -hmm. it just took away from like a beautiful storyline we could have had if like that never happened I think I think that Buffy helping Spike was completely within her character. We see her yeah. give every mm -hmm. single person a chance. Everyone who hurts her in so many ways. I mean, look at what Faith does. And she still gives Faith opportunities after in season seven and all that. Um, I think it's just hard because the reality of things is that and Angelus raped people as well. Like we see him kind of tease the gypsy girl and it's kind of like alluded to that he's like, mm -hmm. that he touches her and stuff before he, like, you know, um, drinks from her. And he talks about other stuff. And so it's like, Angelus did stuff. So did Spike. The difference is, is that Spike did it to Buffy. And so it's mm -hmm. like, we had to see it and watch it all. And then for Buffy to be the person to have to walk yeah. through his redemption with him. It's beautiful for her. It's beautiful to sit there and be like, oh my gosh, Buffy is so strong. But it's hard to watch as a viewer. To root for his redemption. He was the, yeah, he was the one yeah. who caused her so much pain. Because if you think about Buffy and Faith, Buffy wasn't the one who walked through, through the redemption with Faith. Angel was. Um, because Buffy, like, Faith had done so much to Buffy that it was like she almost needed that fresh start on Angel. Where she needed someone to look her in the eye and be like you you get a fresh start and faith an angel was perfect for that because angel was unattached you know um he faith had caused him pain but it wasn't through Buffy, any separate not pain his own. yeah like well he well she had shot him with the arrow yeah so but she had like hurt him but it wasn't anything <laughs> that was necessarily super emotional mm -hmm. um she was the catalyst that broke him and Buffy up. Um, but I think it, it was, it's easier to watch because we, in my opinion, Buffy caused, or Faith caused Buffy a lot more pain than she did Angel. 
So we kind of root for Faith's redemption more because it was with someone who wasn't touched as much by her damages. It would have been hard to see Faith's redemption be walked through with Xander because of what she did to him. And I think it's the same thing with Spike where it's like, I root for his redemption. I just, I think that it could have been done in a way that wasn't so reliant on the shoulders of the person he hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it also just made it messy. And I'm, this will be the last because we'll be talking about this probably from here on out. Um, but I think it's also just makes it more complicated and confusing because the writers tried so hard to make Spike likable um, before he had even gotten a soul. And so it made the lines really muddy and really confusing because you're like, people be like, oh, Spike was capable of loving and doing good things before he had a soul. And it's like, okay, well then which is it? Is soulless Spike capable of love? And if so, then he's also capable of stopping himself from assaulting Buffy, which then leads into messy things when he does get a soul because a lot of that argument of like, well, that was pre-sold Spike. It's different. That's how season seven wants you to um, to view it as. But what the writers didn't get then and what they don't get with Riley and what they don't sometimes get with Xander is that you could say that that can make perfect sense with the lore. But if your audience is seeing and experiencing these things, you have to make sure that there's a smooth transition and it is very clear where you're going because we're watching Spike assault this girl that we've loved for six seasons. And then you're suddenly going to have us be okay with him for the next season. Like they had their work cut out to do and they didn't do a great job of that. But anyway, okay. We'll talk about Spike later. Let's talk about Buffy because I much prefer to do that. Um, The last character that we're going to talk about for this episode. So the sad part about everyone's portrayal of Buffy in their dreams and in this episode is that none of them see her completely accurately. I don't know if you guys noticed that. Willow sees Buffy as like hyper excited and kind of a little bit like ditzy. And then Xander sees her as like like a child in a sandbox and like he worries about her, is concerned for her. And then Giles sees her as a kid in pigtails and with overalls. And they all see her somewhat childlike and they don't know what it is to be a slayer. And that's sad because she's out there searching for them in her dream. But ultimately, that is what divides them in the first place is the fact that they don't fundamentally understand what it means to be a slayer. Um, And it actually shows that Buffy is right when she tells them that there are things that they can't do with her. Um, The last couple episodes of season seven. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I know. Right. (laughs) We're not there yet. Um, Also, note, the show subtly compares the initiative's demand that everyone be uniform and look the same to the first Slayer's assertion that Buffy work alone because that's how it's always been done. And as we will come to find out, the first Slayer being the way that she is because of the Shadowman, aka the Watchers, made her that way. So in a lot of ways, the Watchers and the Initiative are cut from the same cloth. And so that's where they try to make the similarities between Riley and Buffy and stuff. Um, it's always funny to me when we watch the some seasons like this and in some parts of season seven where you're watching, you're like, I'm not sure where you're going with this. Why are you making these comparisons? And then you get to the last episode and Joss comes in and swoops in and somehow makes it all tie together. And you're like... Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And then you're like, yeah, the writers had no idea what they were doing. And Joss had to kind of go in and just go, well, we're just going to piece it all together. Um, That's kind of how I feel about the correlations in this episode. But 
Okay, so the desert in which Buffy confronts the first Slayer will turn out to be a real location. This is where Buffy will undergo the vision quest in season five's season five's intervention. Uh, there's an interesting moment where Buffy gives her monologue to the first Slayer. She says, um, I eat, I walk, I talk, I shop. Um, I'm going to be a fireman when the floods roll back. Season three, Buffy tells Giles, fire bad, tree pretty. After graduation day part, too, but then also in season six, the musical episode, she sings I Will Walk Through the Fire, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, in Buffy's dream, when Adam tells her that the two of them come by aggression differently than humans, she exclaims that we're not demons, presumably referring to herself and her fellow slayers, to which Adam responds with, is that a fact? And then again, in Get It Done, Buffy will discover that the first slayer was created with the essence of a demon as well as the slayer line. And Passion Learn pointed out that Adam, like we've seen in past episodes, I think it was in Superstar, he has the ability to kind of see past lies and see truth. So it's possible that even in the dream, Adam was seeing past the lies that Buffy's been told about her not actually having the essence of a demon and saying, hey, that's not true. Um, and so, okay, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the first Slayer, Sinea, and kind of her backstory. So this is taken from um, stuff that Joss has filled in over the years. Some of it's like from comics and other stuff like that. But this is kind of who Sinea was and how she came to be in this episode. So in prehistoric Africa, a young girl named Sinea was taken against her will by three powerful mages, the Shadow Men, to become the ultimate weapon in the fight against the dark forces that plagued the world. They chained her to the floor of a cave and, using powerful magic, imbued her with the heart, soul, and spirit of a demon. Interesting. Thus, the first Slayer was created. So interesting that Buffy's able to harness the power of the first because of her friendships, and she grabs the heart, soul, and mind of her friends and is therefore able to become stronger than the first slayer, which is very interesting. Um, this offends the first slayer because by very definition, the slayer is to be alone. As the first slayer, Sinea possesses superhuman strength, speed, durability, agility, stamina, reflexes, accelerated healing, and innate combat skills. However, due to her direct connection to the shadow demon, her superhuman powers were vastly superior to the other vampire slayers who came after. She was less diluted. She also possessed the ability to astral project into the dreams and visions of other slayers, as well as the precognitive ability to foretell impending dangers. Guided by her instincts and armed with her superhuman powers, Sinea hunted and killed vampires and demons. While the villagers she protected were grateful, they feared the slayer for being part demon, so they gave her a basket of supplies and asked her to leave. Isolated, Sinea became a recluse with either little or no contact with her own humanity or humanity at large. Though Sinea never had a watcher, at some point she was given the weapon, the, the scythe, by the guardians, and she used it to slay the last of the old ones that walked upon the earth. Fatefully, that particular slaying took place in the Hellmouth in what would one day be the town of Sunnydale, and I'm pretty sure that's how she died, um, although they don't say. After her death, Sinea's powers passed on to another girl, and thus the Slayer line was born. Thousands of years later, that's when the Scooby gang used the enjoining spell to invoke Sinea's spirit to defeat the near-invincible Adam, and she considered that as an offense. And we will see her again in Season 5 when she tells Buffy that death is her gift. And we will also see her twice in Season 7. Um, well, we'll see her once in Season 7. Giles actually takes the potential Slayers on a trip to the desert to meet the guide in the form of the first Slayer to see if she can provide information to the on the first evil, but Sinea does not appear. Instead, she appears to Buffy about a week later, and we'll talk about that in a second. So 
I thought that was really interesting. Kind of fleshes things out. She wasn't always primal and animalistic. She kind of became that way because she was shunned by people because of her demon side. Um, and it's so interesting because, especially with the lens of the whole series, Sinea was the most powerful slayer because of her connection to the shadow demon. Yet Buffy is known, she surpasses that, and she's now known as the most powerful slayer because her mind, heart, and spirit are her friends and her connection to the world. And this is going to be, I know you guys are sick of this probably, but this is going to be the thread that we follow for the rest of the series. This idea of shared power in combination with choosing your own path, which is so brilliant because it turns the very premise of the show on its head. The chosen one carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders alone. So the show is steadily building this idea up with the entire series focusing heavily on choice, even if you don't have a good one, and the idea that it is not good to be isolated and alone, but also the contrast of no one really truly understands the burden that it is to be a slayer. And we see that here. Buffy's friends don't really understand her, even if they are the key to her strength. So we're seeing that Joss and the writers are subtly showing us that Buffy needs them, but ultimately she's still alone in her calling. Um So Buffy is, you know, through all that, even still Buffy embraces her destiny while also saying, I'm going to do it my way. Um, And we talked about this last season. Faith shares knowledge and power with Buffy in their dream and graduation day, which symbolizes the two slayers are stronger than one. And then we get to season seven. And who is it that gives Buffy the idea that her power is not enough to fight the first evil? Sinea. Sinea comes to Buffy in season seven and says it's not enough. And then that's when it all clicks for Buffy. If her power is not enough, and if she were more powerful, and if she was more powerful conjoined with her friends and even with Faith, perhaps the shared power of all the potential slayers is. And to top it all off, Buffy gives them the choice on whether or not they even want that shared burden and responsibility. She contrasts what the shadow men did to Sinea, chaining her to the earth and forcing her to take the essence of the demon by freely offering the chance for power to a community that both understands and also shares in the burden of being a slayer. She could not give that power to Giles, to Xander, and to Willow. They don't understand what it means. She had to give it to a potential. Um and I just uh, – I get chills every time we get to season seven and I, every time we see that theme of shared power because it really does turn the whole thing on its head. And it's just uh, it's such a good way of ending the series. Um, and I also want to like point out too, it is interesting to note that in Get It Done, when they have Buffy chained to the rocks and the three shadow men are trying to give her the essence of the demon against her consent, she rejects the essence of the demon by using her voice. She screams, which is very, very similar to the way that she broke the gentleman's spell in Hush, the cry of a woman no longer being silent about her oppression, which is so powerful. Um, So yeah, always have to end it when talking about shared power. Um, But yeah, it gives me goosebumps every time. So, um, and then last... Last of all, uh, just talk about a, like quickly a little bit of foreshadowing. We all know about like the Terra, the Dawn stuff. We have foreshadowing of Tabula Rasa. Giles and Spike are swinging high, enjoying themselves. Uh, Spike is wearing the same suit that he's going to wear in Tabula Rasa. They talk about the land shark and they have the lone shark that's walking on land that comes in Tabula Rasa to get his debts from Spike. Joyce, living in uh, as apparently insane and living in walls, IMDb says that this is foreshadowing of the mental issues associated with her brain tumor. I think that's kind of iffy, depending upon how you interpret it. But we also do have the funny aneurysm joke from Buffy and the freshman about you know her mom having an aneurysm over how expensive school books are. 
<laughs> Poor Leah. She gets triggered every time we talk about the body. I just um, can't believe you called that a funny joke. It's so sad. Uh. Oh, I didn't mean it as funny. I just meant that she called it a funny aneurysm. That's what Buffy says. Mama have a funny aneurysm. I don't necessarily think that's funny. But anyway, uh, it was actually during the filming of this episode that Michelle Trachtenberg, who would go on to play Dawn, first visited the set. She was on set when this episode oh, was wow. uh She's filming. like, what type of show is this? It's like the yeah. one episode that's so freaking weird. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, and then, of course, we have, you know, Tara and Willow talking in Willow's dream sequence, talking about how they haven't found a name for Dawn, which I always thought was really cute because Tara and Willow kind of become surrogate parents for Dawn in season six after Buffy dies. And so it's kind of neat that they have a close relationship with her. Um, and I won't go into all of it because I'm pretty sure most everybody knows, but all that stuff with Tara and Buffy in her room talking about 730 is all about Dawn, the idea of the clock being the wrong time. It's not 730. It's 365 days now. The golden light that we see everywhere is mimicking the rising dawn that Buffy looks at as she realizes that she can sacrifice herself for her sister, that death is her gift. That light has been in quite a few places this season. And hush, there was supposed to be golden sun when Riley and Buffy are in the classroom, the dream with Faith. Um, and also the one in graduation day and then here in this episode. It's also very interesting that Buffy's face is flooded with light as she looks up after having the like mud on her face and she looks up to where the desert is and she's flooded with golden light. Meanwhile, Riley goes back into the shadows. Um, and then I talked about the cat in the non-spoiler episode about all the instances we see a cat, but again, we're going to see more of the spirit guide later on in season five in conjunction with Sinea. Okay, and then this last thing I'm going to say, and then y'all are free to go. Thanks for sticking around this long. But I'm not going to talk too much about this because, you guys, it's just your little tease to come back for season five. Um, but I've always wondered how the theme of season four identity ties into season five because in a lot of ways it feels like season five repeats that theme with Buffy because season five is all about her discovering who she is. And I'm like, is that non-identity? Um, obviously, the main theme for season five is family, but there is also another theme. So in season three, Buffy lost Giles as her watcher, both from the council firing him, but also he broke her trust. She also destroyed the mayor who destroyed Snyder, both re representing high school which is another marker of childhood. And she rejected the authority of the Watchers Council while demonstrating a more mature relationship with her mother, all markers that she has now grown up. So season four was all about not suppressing your nature, instead embracing it and asserting your identity. So how does this lead us into season five? Well, if Buffy is supposed to accept her nature, because season four was all about accepting your nature and not change it, what happens if her true nature is actually darker and more terrifying than the monsters she's been chosen to face. What if she's the actual monster? And that's what we're going to discuss in season five. So as they kind of hint in season four, Buffy might have this darkness in her, but she's supposed to accept her nature. So what is she going to do? So I think that's super cool. And when like I made that connection, I was like, oh, season five is just going to be so good, you guys. And yeah, with that, we are done with season four. Woo! <laughs> The absolute longest so season stoked. ever. Yeah, that was a long season for sure. But anyway, as you guys can tell, we're excited to talk about season five. It's my personal favorite season. There's so much, so much good stuff to talk about. We've already recorded um, the first spoiler section in the first regular episode. And it's just 
right it's off the bat, it's already like, just better. It's like, so much even better. Though it's such a camp filled episode, and people don't like it. I'm like, oh, I just it's the air of season five for me. Like it's Buffy's hair. It's just the like. I don't know. It's it's things are clearer, more crisp in season five. The the stunts, Buffy's leather pants are back. I'm like, it's just the vibes. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's it's good. I and I'm I'm reading through some of your guys' comments. Yeah. There is like problematic stuff that really starts popping yeah. up in that season. We still which have a bit though. Is, we have a while. Yeah. And it's not the entirety of season five. It's sprinkled in, which I can handle. Yeah, I can definitely deal with it. So B-Real came off. <laughs> I'll take my B-Real. This is uh, what happens when you're live recording. B-Real, you know, stops you in the middle of it. Gotta but, make sure um, B-Real goes off. Gotta make sure you're actually doing it when B-Real goes off. No, um, just so you guys know, this will be our last episode for season four. We're going to be going on a hiatus until the first week of August. I think it's August 3rd. Yep, Thursday, August 3rd, we'll be dro- dropping Buffy versus Dracula. Um, so yeah, we're going to take a little bit of a – like about a, a little over a month break and stuff. But yeah, either way, we are so excited to be back with you guys and talk about season five. We're going to miss you, but that just means we're going to have really great content. And if you are our Buy Me a Coffee subscriber, there will probably be some fun stuff that we'll be dropping over there over the break too. So check it out. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thanks so much for uh, just talking with us and giving us your thoughts. Um, We will announce the winner of the giveaway. For those of you guys that were here and were commenting and stuff, we'll do a draw and then we will announce the winner probably in a couple days or so. So have a good night, guys. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. 